Amen. Amen. Well, I hope you're excited about all that. Golly. That gets me really pumped to see some of the stuff that's been, some of the stuff that's coming, some of the stuff that you are going to do. Yeah, that's right. It's not just other people and you get to kind of watch and every five years eat some barbecue. You are going to do, uh, we're going to see how God stirs you and changes you and grows you into something that he's going to build and use in that way. Very exciting. So uh, my name is Ben, one of the pastors here. Today we're going to be in the book of First John at the very end of the New Testament or towards the end of the New Testament. Turn or tap your way there. If you don't have a copy of the scriptures, please don't panic. We'll have those words on the screen for you. We'd love to give you a copy of the scriptures. So as we're going through First John, we're thinking about certainty. We've got our context. What's going on for us right now as we look at what has been and what will be. We're going to try and draw some things together. We talked about how certainty, I need certainty. If I'm going to take steps of faith, oh, some of this sounds sort of antithetical. Isn't faith supposed to be nonsensical? Isn't that what faith is? If it was just plain logic, it wouldn't take faith, right? Well, not really. The way that the Bible describes faith, it describes a commitment to something you believe to be true. But of course, there's incredible evidence for this thing you believe to be true. What we've been talking about as we talk about First John is the kind of certainty you can have that you are his, you're in his camp, you're part of his family, not because of what you do, but because of what he has done and the way that what he has done gets inside you and starts to change you. And so John is able to give us a couple of different tests for our spiritual condition, tests that will give us evidence to build our faith. Faith that is existing on, placed upon, something solid, something you can go back to and test. It's not that we are commanded to believe something that is purposefully difficult to believe, but as John puts this series of kind of word pictures together, that there is light and there is darkness. And as we engage in the works of darkness, the things that are, the things that are his, the things that are bright and light and beautiful are hidden to us. You think about the kid that's having a bad day at the end of Christmas. What? If you have kids, it'll happen every year. At the end of Christmas, they're having a bad day. And you're like, what is the problem? And in some way, by giving them so much and by loving them so well over the course of this day, you've just allowed their heart to turn in on itself and its selfishness to grow at such a rate that they'll be at the end of Christmas and all they can see is what they didn't get. Or what they didn't get in the last, like, five minutes. Because really, they got a ton of stuff. And there's nothing they wanted that they didn't get. But in the last five minutes, sister was playing with that. And I wanted to play with it. And now this is just a horrible day. How is that possible? It's, it's absolutely possible. It's happening to you and me constantly. That, as we turn in on ourselves, somehow we're flipping off all of these bright lights. We're hiding in a cave of our own making. And from the darkness of that cave, we're screeching to God, why won't you give me light? 
interesting. Some of the argument that First John is making. Some of the way that we are to know who we are is as we seek out that light and we have that light in our lives. So it's a little abstract, light and dark. You're not talking in hard, concrete language. I understand that. But hopefully by the end of today we can add just a little bit more to that understanding. We have to because those grand visions that we're talking about for the next five years, they have to happen. They're going to happen. I will say, being a part of Hope Church initially for me was part of a a selfish desire to just see a miracle from the inside. I remember as a kid being at camp and the camp pastor in one of the like morning times, he had this whole big basket of questions and you could put questions in at any time during the day and the next morning he would take that basket and he'd just answer questions. And one of the questions that I asked was, why don't we see miracles anymore like in the Old Testament where the water of the Red Sea splits in half and the dead are raised? And the pastor, who had given like longer answers to questions I thought were stupid, took my question and was like, we see miracles all the time. People are coming to Christ daily. And then he just pulls out the next one. I was like, whoa. <laughs> and I was so mad about it that I've thought about it over the years. And he's right. So when it came time to go and try and start a church or plant a church, there was a part of me that said, well, that might work and it might not. But if it does, what an incredible joy, what an incredible joy to live out a miracle from the inside, to watch as God cures, he, he creates and builds from nothing something that could only exist if he did it. Wouldn't that be amazing? And as we look forward to the next five years, you say to yourself, okay, well, it did seem difficult to get Hope Church going. Is it really that reasonable for us to try and attempt to put on our shoulders the weight of another church? Do you see what I'm saying? If it's already heavy to be just daily trying to do Hope Church, what part of you would say reasonably, yeah, let's do five more? Why do we have that as a vision? We have to. It says in 1 Timothy 2, verse 3 and 4. It's good. It's pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires. God, our Savior, desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. David said it. Making disciples, yes. Why churches? It's the best way to make disciples. And God, our Savior, desires all to come to a knowledge of the truth. There's some piece of you on the inside that's like, well, I've got it. Do I really need to work that hard for others to get it? I'm good. Do I care that much that others don't have it? Well, If that's your heart, I want you to walk into a theme in 1 John. And today we're going to be doing the test of love. A test of your certainty. Who am I? It's a test last week of obedience today. The test of love. And it comes from three different sections in three different chapters. Two, three, and four. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at a little bit from chapter two. A little bit from chapter three. A little bit from chapter four. And try to sew together this theme that runs through this short book on the way that we love, love, love 
one another. And my hope is that we will both attain a greater level of certainty and that we will plug into the momentum that's going to drive Hope Church to the next round and the next round and the next round of growth. Look what it says in 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 7. Please forgive my voice. If it bothers you, pray for me because yeah, I'm preaching. So here we go. Verse 7. <clears throat> Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Again, we're picking up these concepts of light and darkness, sight and blindness. What is he talking about? Whenever you have a question from Scripture, it's helpful to go to other parts of Scripture to try and understand. I think John would anticipate that we do that. When he says light, he's picking up on not just physical photons or whatever light is, but the very presence of God. This is what it says in Revelation 22, 3-5. No longer will there be anything accursed, talking about the new heaven and the new earth, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in that city. We will be in the city. We will be in the presence of the throne of the God, the throne of God and of the Lamb. His servants, that's us, will worship Him. They will see His face. His name will be on their foreheads. And night, darkness, will be no more. They're not going to need a, a lamp or a light or the sun. For the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. What's it saying? The presence of God excludes darkness. In some way, that's what light is referring to. It's referring to his presence. It's referring to the place where God is or where his ways are followed, where his people lift up his name and worship his name. Light or darkness. Well, we're going to go to Jesus and learn about darkness. He says in Matthew and other places in the Gospels, they cast out the worthless servant into the darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Darkness, what does that mean? It's a separation from the light. A separation from God's presence. It says in Matthew 27 that Jesus himself, now from the sixth hour, there was a darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. About the ninth hour, Jesus cries out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You want to know what darkness is? Jesus knows. Not because he has sought it, like we do, but because he endured it on our behalf. From the sixth hour to the ninth hour, do you know what time that is? It's midday, folks. 
from noon to 3 p.m. The sun goes away. Why? Because there is a physical representation of the spiritual reality that Jesus himself is no longer before the face of God as his son, but is now before the face of God as a sacrifice for the sin of humanity. He is saying in that moment, why have you forsaken me, that he has stepped into hell. I don't know, people always talk about the Bible being complicated or difficult. I don't know. It just seems to have two things. Heaven and hell. Light and darkness. God, not God. That's just two things. And what John is making very clear is that you and I are even now living in a presence. Living in a moment that is either one Or the other. Right now you are enduring to some degree. Heaven and or hell. That's what it said in 2 John. It said because the darkness is passing away. The true light is already shining. To some degree both. The darkness of hell itself. And the light of heaven itself. Is present now. And you through the way that you. Interact with God or run from him, are experiencing both heaven and or hell now. What heaven is in its fullness, what hell is in its fullness, now you are experiencing, engaging in, in part. What do we do with this? Well, John helps us to to show us individuals who exemplify one and then the other. Individuals who show us heaven and show us hell. We have in both of these places, heaven and hell, the rulers or the ones who are exemplifying these places. You have God the Father in heaven and it's his presence and his His personhood, who he is, that lights the place and characterizes the place. Then you have hell, and in hell you have the enemy. The one who is defined by his rebellion against God and his attempt to curve creation in on himself. So much so that not only does he tempt Adam and Eve, he also has the temerity to stand before Christ himself and try to tempt Christ to worship Himself. Think about that. So you have these these exemplifiers, these rulers of these realms. And then John gives us individuals who show us what it's like to be a son of heaven and what it's like to be a son of hell. Look what it says in 1 John chapter 3. For this is the message you heard from the beginning, that we should... Love one another. Oh, interesting. Okay, he started that chapter 2 section this way. He's starting it again in chapter 3. That's part of how we know that these are related thematically. He's bringing in again this commandment, not to love God, which seems to be the primary directive, but to love man, to have a connection with other humans. It says love one another, verse 12. Then here we have a... um, an antithetical case. Here's the positive example. Here's the negative example. Verse 12. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. 
Don't be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Who doesn't love does not, uh, I'm sorry, whoever does not love abides in death. Oh, that word abides. As you read the scripture, some of these words are going to just start to key in other passages of scripture that you abide in the vine. He is, Jesus is the vine and we're the branches. We abide in him. We bear much fruit. And what it's saying here is that Cain is abiding in some sort of other system, some sort of other sustenance that is bearing a different sort of darkness, a different sort of fruit, even death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love. Ooh, okay, interesting. We had our negative case. Look at this positive case. That he laid down his life for us. That's exactly the opposite of what Cain did. We ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. For anyone who has the world's good and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against them, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. The story of Cain, if you don't know it, is that God creates all things, puts man and woman in the garden. They rebel against God and he curses them. And the longer I live and the more scripture I read, the more I see that I don't know that this is God's active curse so much as it is him telling them the implications of what they've done. When he curses the woman, he says, you're going to have more pain in childbearing. And this one's interesting because that's the headline. And of course, it's listed first and we all see that. It's a big thing in our culture. There's stories, women giving birth. They're never laughing. There's never juice boxes. They're screaming, and men's hands are being crushed, and doctors are getting freaked out. It's awful, obvious. That's that's part of the curse. We see that. But it says, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. In the most intimate relationship that God has given us, the one between man and his wife, there's strife. It wasn't supposed to rhyme. (laughs) But I write it down that way like it was supposed to rhyme. And the very next story shows how this outflowing of rebellion against God into rebellion of man against man. The very next story is Cain and Abel. It says, Adam and Eve had their first kid, Cain. Then they have a second kid, Abel. And you get down to verse 6 of chapter 4. It says, Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why was Cain angry? Both Cain and Abel bring sacrifices to God. Very interesting that to stand in the presence of God, even in prehistory, to stand in the presence of God, you need to sacrifice if you're a sinner. They got that from the beginning. Abel gives a sacrifice accepted by God. He's brought into God's presence. Cain gives a sacrifice rejected by God. Why? Well, there's all kinds of possibilities. Maybe it wasn't his best. Maybe a sacrifice wasn't genuine. It wasn't done in love. It wasn't done to attain God's love. Uh, I'm sorry, to attain God and his love, but rather to use God and to make him Cain's servant, that Cain would somehow now have bargaining chips before God. The human heart is dark. I think it's, I think it's a little bit um, 
uh, true, but also maybe you miss some stuff. If you just say, well, you know, he didn't give his best. Instead of reconciling himself to God, God calls Cain on it, rejects the sacrifice, says to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you don't do well, sin is crouching at the door, his desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain doesn't respond to God, but goes to find Abel. Verse 8, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. They're in the field. Cain rose up against his brother, Abel, and killed him. Here's what John said. Whoever does not love abides, abides in death. Now, Here's what's so difficult. As soon as I start painting these pictures of heaven and hell, you immediately say, well, not me. I'm not even come close to killing my brother. I mean, there was that one time, but that was an accident, and (laughs) mom walked in and stopped it before anything got out of hand. Okay. But what it's saying here is you either have love for your brother or you don't. And we live in a culture that is zero-sum game. I get it, and you don't, or you get it, and I don't. So I'm going to work, and I'm going to fight, and I'm going to sacrifice for me. And I might give you something, but if I choose to do that, it's because you're either going to give me something back, or because I want to feel good about myself, and this will help me feel less guilty about horrible things I've done. Cain life is darkness. And in verse chapter 4, and in chapter 3 as well, we have the other side of that in Christ. It says in chapter 4, verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God. Because God is love. We talked about last week how it said God is light. And then it says here in chapter 4, God is love. And that does not mean you can take God and change who he is based on your definition of love, but that you go to God finding out who he is so that you can adjust your definition of love. Does that make sense? So it continues, it says, In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. It was given a visual. It was given physicality. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God is in us. He Abides As we abide in death when we're in darkness, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. It grows out of us like fruit from a tree. So then your perspective on the world because of God's love towards you is not that you're going to love other people in the same way that you love a cookie. You love a cookie because you can take it and you can crush it and it ceases to exist, but you feel good. That's how most of us love other people in the world. We love them for their utility to us. Love, though. 
The love that it's describing here in the way that God has loved us is a golden, overwhelming sensation of value that you're attributing to someone else, whether they have it or not. You say, I desire good for their sake, even if it means I must be crushed for them. Because, of course, that's what Christ did. He didn't come to use us, but to be crushed for us. In that is love. Now, are you ready to have that love for others? Because that's the only thing that's going to make this thing go. If you abide in the light of God's presence, feeling his love, you will have love for others. And as you abide in his love, you're going to abide in the light and you're going to love and sacrifice for others. And there's a party that goes, sure, great, let's do it. And that's because love for your brother is part of the motivation for almost every good thing you've ever heard in your life. Even the mob, gangs, that's what they'll say. Go out and do this and sacrifice for your brother, your other gang member. This is a heavenly love and this is a heavenly sacrifice. It goes well beyond the kind of let's mutually gain sacrifice that we see in the world. We say we want to make disciples and we say that we want to plant churches. And not only do we need love and love towards others so that we'll have the motive and the strength to go out and love others, but because you need the church in order for other people to see the gospel. If we say make disciples and plant churches, you say, yes, We should be making disciples. I feel love from God. I want others to experience that same warm feeling. But plant churches? Ah. Again, it seems like a lot of effort. You mean there would be another place that we would have to staff for kids ministry? You mean there would be another place where you'd have to have somebody up here preaching? You'd have to have another place where there's people that are out there really getting to know one another and feeling that iron sharpening iron, the sparks that go off from that. Yeah. Why? Because we are not simply brains in jars. Culturally, we've kind of been reduced to that. That we're all just brains and we're going to decide if something's right or decide if something's wrong just based on argumentation. And the gospel is well equipped to fight on that front. So the church has kind of gotten good at that. We're great at writing books and we're great at writing blogs and we're great at having arguments. But the human is more than just that. And while we may say you must convince me based on just my mind, just based on rationality, in truth, you are a full thing and you will be convinced of the gospel as you see it address your full humanity. As you see it address in love your whole person. As you see, the church, which is a place which is equipped for diversity. The one thing that binds us is our love for God. And so we don't have a binding agent that's solely based on ethnicity. Or economics. Or shared backgrounds. Or shared education. Or shared interests. No. I mean incredibly diverse people by coming to the church. You're going to find a place that is based on acceptance. 
You can be forgiven for anything because of what Christ has done for you. So you can just come here and be accepted. You don't have to earn it here. You're just accepted. You can be forgiven. Radical forgiveness. Based on the radical forgiveness that God has given us, you can find here sacrifice. A place where the people are marginally, but growing, unselfish. So well provided for by God that they don't need you to serve them. All of this resulting in a beauty that is heaven itself. (laughs) And you will experience heaven and you will be, as Christ says, a city on a hill giving its light out into the world. Calling all men to experience that same love. So we must love one another. Will you? If you understand what he's done for you, you then you then have the source, the power source, the capacity to love one another. Will you? I'll tell you, sometimes it's difficult to get people to come to community groups. It's easy to get them to come back. If you get it six weeks or eight weeks, you're in. It gets sticky. But that first time, it's hard. Sometimes it is difficult to get people to have somebody call with some sort of a need and that person can do nothing for us at Hope Church. We pass that need around and by God's grace, because of what he's doing in your hearts, we see people immediately jump on it, but not because you're good, but because of what he's doing in you. Hope Church, are you ready for the kind of commitment it's going to take to make disciples Are you ready for that kind of love? If you are, then even now you will experience a taste of heaven itself. Lord God and Heavenly Father, I just pray for light. I pray that you would dispel the darkness. I pray that you dispel the darkness the world over, but I pray that you would start in this room with these individuals, that we would be people who are absolutely, rabidly committed to abiding in you and showing the same kind of love to others that you have shown to us through Christ. Lord, I pray that we would study Cain so that we could understand our own hearts and see the parts of us that rebel against you. Father, would you please make of us a people who shine your light to the world. pray these things in your son's holy name.